redeeming hope of the resurrection. It's why we're here today. Matter of fact, Paul says in this very chapter that we'll read from in just a moment, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19, he said, we of all people are to be most pitied if there is no resurrection. Your faith is in vain, your life is in vain, your hope is in vain. There is no hope. And you stake your life on a lie, basically, is what Paul is saying. But in fact, we do believe that there is a risen and resurrected Lord. And for those of us who know him, not only will one day we be giving resurrected bodies, no, not only will we be given a new life that fulfills all the hopes and dreams that we've ever had, not only will God do all of those things, but for all that we've longed for, and he will restore all that we have lost that is pure and right and holy. That's the story of the resurrection. That's the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That not only did he conquer sin and death, but he gives you the power through the resurrection to conquer sin and death one day as well. And that we all will be resurrected, all, the, all of us who call him Lord and Savior. Uh, Ken Davis tells a story about a woman who was looking out her back window into her backyard one day to check on her dog. They had a great big German shepherd. And she noticed this German shepherd was shaking something violently. And she thought to herself, oh no, it can't be. For you see, their next door neighbors had a rabbit, a fluffy white rabbit. And they had been warned many times to keep their dog away from their rabbit because their dog would often come up to the fence and growl at their rabbit. And they felt afraid to sometimes let their rabbit out and run around in the field. And she thought, this can't be. But she went out, and sure enough, her dog had that rabbit. She goes, oh, no, what do I do? Because relationships were tense already. So she thought to herself, I, I don't know what else to do. So she took that rabbit, she took it in, and she washed it. And then she, she shampooed it. And then she got it looking all night. Then she blow-dried it, and she got it all blow and she got it all fluffy and white. And she took it back, and she snuck over the fence, and she put it in their pen, and she propped him up. And then she left. And a couple hours later, she hears screaming from her neighbor, Help! Help! My rabbit! My rabbit! And she walks out like nothing happened. because goes, What's going on? She goes, My rabbit! My rabbit! What is it with your rabbit? He died two days ago, and we buried him, and he's back. <laughs> that breaks our paradigm. We don't like to see things that are dead come back. And there are still there's those today who struggle with that same concept. Matter of fact, I was reading an article this week. There are four billionaires today that have devoted themselves to defeating death. I'll get, I didn't know their names. One of them's name is Peter Thiel, and he's invested heavily in organizations and foundations that rejuvenate biotechnologies for the purpose of extending life. Then there's William Andreg, the founder of Silicon Valley, Valley Nan, Nanotechnology, the Helicon Molecular Company, uh, which he's put hundreds and billions of dollars into uh, to try to extend life. Matter of fact, they're claim is that they will extend life millions, maybe even billions of years. Then there's the Rus Russian transhumanist millionaire, multimillionaire, uh, Istikov, who has a 2045 initiative 
where he believes that you'll be able to live forever by 245, as long, just as soon as they can figure out how to transfer us into artificial bodies. Uh, and then there's one last billionaire, Larry Ellison, who uh, has put over $40 million each year for nearly 10 years into the Lifespan Development Program. Uh, Edison was recently quoted, he goes, Death makes me angry. It doesn't make sense to me. I've worked too hard, and I've, and I've gleaned too much to just let it go. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure it doesn't happen. But you know what's going to happen? Death is going to happen to each one of these men, just like it's going to happen to us if Jesus doesn't come back during our lifetime. You see, death has a sting if you don't believe and if you've not accepted the risen and resurrected Lord. It's still hard. It still hurts for all of us. But for those of us who know him, we have a hope that all that we've lost will be restored and everything that we've dreamed of will come true once we meet our Savior. It is the purpose for which we were created. It is the purpose for which we exist to bring God glory until that time. Now, when we started this service, we started it with something that's typically known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, there are multiple variations of the Apostles' Creed. There's a Catholic one, there's a Lutheran one, there's a Methodist one, there's an Episcopalian one, there's a Greek Orthodox one. There are multiple. So we've taken what we call the Old Roman Creed. It's the oldest one. Uh, Hardly anybody uses it, but I thought it's the oldest one. It's dated about 300 A.D., and we'll use that one. And so for those of you who wonder, why do you change words? Why do you leave out lines? That's why, okay? The only word we left out was holy church. We put church. I'm going to put it back in there uh, just so people won't be disturbed by it. But nevertheless, um, there is an older creed than that. And it's found in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to take it and, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Matter of fact, this is probably where the original creeds came out of. This is the basis. Uh, this is the uh, very basic aspect of the creed. And this is the gospel message right here that Paul gives us. Now, a little information about this creed. Uh, and I did have one of those pointers. There we go. Uh, I want to show you a brief timeline uh, on this creed right here. Uh, we know Jesus died around 30 A.D. Some scholars say 33 A.D., some say 30 A.D. He was born uh, around 3 or 4 B.C. I know sometimes we think, well, didn't it happen uh, on zero? No, that's, uh, that's dating uh, that we, we probably just kind of have inserted there. But he probably was born somewhere around 3 or 4 B.C. Some say uh, earlier, some say a little bit later. Uh, but for, for the purposes of our, uh, our conversation today, Uh, most scholars go with 30 A.D. Paul was converted around 32 A.D., so about two years after the death of Christ. Peter teaches Paul 35 A.D. Now, where Paul probably learned this creed was from Peter. Paul, after he is converted, after three years, he goes and he spends 15 days. The Bible tells us this, if you want to read it, in Galatians chapter 1, beginning with verse 16 through the rest of the chapter. So Paul goes and spends 15 days with Peter. And Peter disciples him. He teaches him. And uh, most scholars believe that this is where he was taught this creed. Even Bart Ehrman, uh, who is an agnostic, uh, said it's leaning toward atheism, the most uh, well-known and uh, credited non-Christian scholar uh, of, of religion in America today, says that this is where he probably gleaned. This, it, because Galatians is about salvation, about grace. And so the context there, we're pretty certain this is where Paul first heard about it, and this is where Paul was taught this creed. And then Paul writes and preaches to the Corinthians in 5055. Now, even Bart Ehrman's, the atheist that I mentioned to you, 
and uh, either even Michael Martin, who's another famous atheist, atheist and uh, also a, stu- uh, a professor of religion, all of them date that this creed was being taught and spoken and recited somewhere right here, somewhere around 31 to 32 A.D. Matter of fact, uh, there are some Christian scholars that can date it to 30 A.D. They date it 30 A.D. So within the first two years, they're reciting this creed, okay? And uh, that's important. We'll see in a moment because some say it was a legend, but you don't start legends right after someone dies, okay? So right within, somewhere from six months to two years, we know that they are reciting this creed as Christians. Now, why were they reciting this creed? Well, 90% of the people who were hearing the message of the gospel were illiterate. So think about how Jesus taught. If you're illiterate, you can't read or write. What do, you, what do you learn from? Stories? Jesus was a master storyteller. You learn from parables? Jesus told many parables. And you learn from reciting creeds, from things that you can easily memorize. So this is something that would have been easy to memorize, and uh, the early church would have recited this. And so <clears throat> when we look at this, we can recognize that this is potentially one of the first aspects of the New Testament that we know that was written as Christians were speaking forth these words. So follow along with me here as we look at the oldest New Testament creed of the New Testament. Now, I would remind you, brothers, Paul is speaking here of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We talked about that earlier. Verse 3, and here's the creed. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. This is what I received. This is what I received from Peter. We know he also uh, visits with James, the brother of Jesus, who becomes the first bishop of Jerusalem. This is what I received, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died. Why? Because of our sins. We're all sinners and in our need of forgiveness of our sins. Christ died for that poor purpose according to the Scriptures. Now, it's very important, according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures are he talking about? is he talking about? He's probably talking about a lot, but let me just give you a couple he's probably making reference to. Psalms 22.1, when Jesus from the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalms 22.18, And they divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Now, when were those prophecies written by David? One thousand years before Christ died on the cross. One thousand years before Christ hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Because God turned his face when the sin of the world was placed upon him. One thousand years before he died on the cross, the Roman soldiers took his garment and they tore it and they, they put it, they cast lots over who would take the garments. That was prophesied 1,000 years before. Continue. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, somewhere uh, around anywhere from nine months to two years before Jesus dies on the cross. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus prophesies and predicts that he will die, be placed in the grave, and then three days later, he will rise. And then one more we have here in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 
31, we'll put on the screen. Let's just go straight to that, to verse 31. And uh, this is Peter speaking, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, from Psalms chapter 16. And he said, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Again, David making that prophecy a thousand years before, just as it says in Scripture. So that's why Paul says right here, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas. Now, who is Cephas? Okay, this isn't both Cephas. This is Cephas known as Peter. Why is it recorded as Cephas here? Do you know what language that they spoke during Jesus' time? Probably the same language that Jesus spoke. It wasn't Greek. That's, that was the educated that would record in Greek. It was Aramaic. That was the language the common man would have spoken. That's the language that Jesus would have primarily spoke and would have preached in. So in that day, what is the Aramaic name for Peter? Cephas. That's another reason we know uh, the age and the validity of this passage. So that's what he would have been called in Aramaic. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. James Jesus' brother, his younger brother, we don't know how much younger, if he was 10, 12 years. He also had a brother named Judah, younger brother who was not one of the disciples. But after the death, burial, and resurrection, after the appearance of Christ, James believes and he becomes a leader in the church and he dies for his faith. Now, it's very important that we understand those components. We see, number one, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 1 through 7 that it's in accordance to Scripture. Number one, I gave you the Scriptures a while ago. Number two, that Christ died for our sins. We recognize we're sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners, and Christ died for us because He's the only one that could atone, could cover our sins. He was buried. He, you, you bury dead people. The Bible has said clearly He's dead, and we'll understand why that's important for a, in a moment. Christ was raised on the third day, and this becomes very problematic. If you're not a believer, this becomes very problematic if you're seeking to discredit Jesus Christ. And Christ appeared after his death and burial. You know, there were a lot of people uh, that came and proclaimed to be the Messiah, that they were going to lead the nation out of the bondage of the Roman Empire. And every time, you know what happened? They'd get crucified on the cross, and that was the end of it. Everybody'd go away. I guess that wasn't him. And they'd all leave, and it dispersed every one of them till Jesus. And it looks like the same thing's going to happen. He's nailed to a cross. It's all over. But then something transforms the disciples. Something transforms hundreds and hundreds of people. You know what it was? It was the resurrection. It was the appearance of Jesus Christ because he conquered death. And that's why we have Christianity today. Now, we have historical historical facts that we see here, things that if they could have produced, uh, it would show that they were falsifiable, that they were wrong. There is plenty of information given in the Gospels uh, that could be easily discredited if they could just find uh, one that didn't exist. For example, Joseph of Arimathea, we have other documentation that we know he existed. Nicodemus, Paul, of course, James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus. But also there are extra biblical sources of verification. Now there are many, but I gave you just a few here. Uh, I gave you just five. Josephus, who was the Jewish historian that recorded much about Jesus' life, tact. Uh, 
Tacitus, the Roman historian, talks about Jesus. Pliny the Younger talks about Jesus. Pelagian, a freed slave who, was, who recorded history, talks about Jesus and Lucian. So when you see these ridiculous books that come out that Jesus never lived, that, uh, that that's a myth, that's just stupidity. Even Bart Ehrman, the guy that I was telling you about, who's the, uh, athe- who's the agnostic who said, I'm leaning toward atheism now. I'm thinking about I'm more atheist than agnostic, who's the historian. He wrote a book to the other atheists saying, Quit making us look stupid. Everybody, historically, we have more documentation that Jesus lived than any other historical figure in ancient history. So quit using that. You're just making yourself look stupid. Okay, so the atheists are, are telling the other atheists, you're stupid. Quit writing those dumb books to sell to people who are naive and want to buy them. Okay? And so that's just a given fact. With that understanding, it's also important for us to recognize you've got to do something with this, that there are literally groups of people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. Groups of people. The women at the tomb. And we saw that woman, and actually there were other women with her that saw Jesus after the, the resurrection. The two travelers on the road to Emmaus. All of the disciples. The, the crowd of 500. The group at the ascension. James, the brother of Jesus. And the apostle Paul, who has a radical transformation. There are historical facts that are believed by the majority of non-Christian scholars. I mentioned Airmen. There's also Michael, Mert, uh, Michael Martin, who's a famous atheist, atheist who's a uh, professor of religion in Boston. They will attest to almost all of these facts that Jesus lived and made some substantial claims. The crucifixion of Jesus occurred. We have 11 independent sources that tell us that Jesus was crucified. Now, in the Quran, in the 7th century when it was written, uh, it claims that Jesus never went on the cross. But that was never even heard of. And that was, quite frankly, something Muhammad invented. So before Muhammad, no one had ever claimed that Jesus hadn't died on the cross. The tomb of Jesus was discovered empty after his death. There's the problem. Pretty much everybody can go, okay, Jesus lived. He made these claims, and the crucifixion of Jesus occurred. He was placed in a tomb, but it was discovered empty. And we're going to look in a moment all these explanations of how the tomb could have been empty because if the tomb empties we've got some big questions if we admit if history and historians admit that Jesus lived that he died that he suffered upon a cross and then he was placed in the tomb what is very hard for us to say is how did he get out of that tomb we got to come up with some explanation we'll talk about that in a moment we also know there are multiple uh, attestations to the reappearance of Jesus Uh, The disciples believed they saw the risen and resurrected body. The disciples were transformed into bold witnesses. Uh, They were were afraid. Uh, They were hiding. But something transformed them. It was the resurrection. It was that they literally saw bodily Jesus Christ. The resurrection was the central theme of early Christianity. The church was born shortly after the death, burial, and resurrection. James, the brother of Jesus, who was not a believer before, was converted to faith after seeing the resurrected Christ. And Paul, who, who set out to destroy Christianity, is radically transformed when he sees Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So we go to the empty tomb theory because there's a problem. We got, if, if I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if I don't believe he's the risen and resurrected Lord, then I've got to do something with empty tomb. How did his body get in there? But when, we, when it was inspected, when people went to it, it was gone because the Romans had sealed it and placed guards there. It was a huge rock, and it was sealed so that no one could, in, could get in. Well, the best explanation, the most popular one for a long time, it's not quite as popular now, but for about 18, 
well, probably about 1,500 years, this was the explanation people would give. It was called the swoon or resuscitation theory. And the swoon theory, we've talked about this before, goes like this. That after Jesus was beaten to a pulp with a whip, and after he tried to carry a cross, which he didn't have the strength to carry, and got Simon, uh, the Cyrene, to to carry it, after he had nails driven through his wrists and through his feet, after a spear was thrust into his side, and the Romans uh, affirmed him as dead, after they took him off the cross, wrapped him in a linen cloth, and put him in the grave, and sealed the tomb, he got better. Okay? And he was able to somehow get the stone pushed away, and he got out, and he showed himself, but he was never really dead. He just was not in good shape. But they gave him some good vitamins and medicine, and he got better, just like Mighty Popeye, okay? So it's, it's kind of ridiculous if you think of it, and if that's your best excuse, I think it's easier just to believe that he rose from the dead uh, than, than that. So even today with all our modern, our modern technology, even if you were able to resuscitate them, for them to get up and walk around, and, and to talk to people and take long journeys and, and to appear, uh, that would be possible. That wouldn't even be possible. You know, you're, you're coming up with some Bernie theory. I don't know what you're coming up with there. So, nevertheless, with that said, uh, other theories that are given, hallucination. They all had hallucination. Well, it's possible some people had, could have eaten some mushrooms. But over 500 people at different times, we all had mass hallucination. We thought we saw him, and it was at different times and different places. The wrong unknown tomb. This is the one people use. You know what? They just went to the wrong tomb. Ah, shoot, we went to the wrong one. That's why we can't find it. Well, how come no one else could find it? The Jews had great interest in finding that tomb, but we never could find it. I think Joseph of Arimathea, who purchased and paid for that tomb, and by the way, only the wealthy had tombs by them. That's why Jesus was given this tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. I think Joseph knew where his tomb was. They knew where it was to take him there. It makes sense they would have known where he was to go get him. So some people say, they just never could find it. And every once in a while you see one of these ridiculous books, oh, we think we found the tomb. Let me tell you, they would have found it by now. I've been there. There are not that many, all right? That's a ridiculous theory. The authorities hit it. Makes no sense again because the authorities, the Jews and the Romans, as the Jews came before Pilate and said, look, he's claimed that he's going to come back after the third day and it'll be worse than this if, if they're able to get his body or if something happens. So they sealed it. So that right there discredits, discredits that position. The Passover plot. Uh, this was a book and a movie that was written in the early 70s. It was kind of like a Da Vinci Code. It was a bad book, bad movie. I, would, I don't recommend it. Uh, but it's that Joseph of Arimathea got with the disciples, and they paid him, and they hatched this elaborate plot where they would drug Jesus to where he would seem like he was dead. So they drugged him, and, and so he went through his beating, went through the crucifixion, and it kind of messed him up when they put that spear in his side. But, you know, he got better. And, um, and then they... They, uh, they snuck in, they paid off the guards, and then they took the body, all right? But again, that makes no sense whatsoever because the Romans sealed it and because the Jews were watching and the tomb and the rock was too big to simply be moved. And plus that, they could have just produced his body at any point. They would go, see, here's his body. He didn't go anywhere, and they never did it. There's the dog theory where the dogs ate the body, which is a ridiculous theory, and nobody believes that. There's the legend theory, and that it just kind of evolved to the place that the way that we look at Jesus now is something that's just evolved over the centuries. Now, what's the biggest discreditation of that one? It's this passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as you look at verses 3 through 7. Within the first year, they're reciting that. If it's a legend, you wouldn't go and say, 
He was died according to the scripture. He was buried according to the scripture. Third day, he rose again and he reappeared. That's not a legend. If that's happening right after Christ, if they're already preaching that, if they're already using that as their creed, as they recite when they come together to worship, it was already true. So the legend theory is not possible. And then my favorite one that's ridiculous is the twin theory. Twin theory goes like this, that Jesus had a twin brother when he was born, but they were separated at birth, and he went somewhere else, went and lived with somebody else. Somebody came and took him or stole him, and he was in another country. And then it just happened as Jesus was dying on the cross, had been placed in the tomb, that Jesus' twin brother, who had never seen since birth, just happens to walk into Jerusalem about that time, and everybody goes, there's Jesus. And he didn't have a lot of money, a lot going on for him. So he just went with it. Yeah, I'm Jesus, whoever he is. And they went with it, and that's who they saw. And that's the twin theory. Again, I just think it's easier to just recognize that Jesus said these things. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus said it. He died upon the cross, and that he rose from the dead. What are you going to stake your salvation, your eternity on? One of these theories are the risen and resurrected Lord. I am so glad that he rose from the dead for us. Larry Hurtado, who's a renowned scholar of New Testament early Christianity at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, said that after the death of Christ, there are two doctrines that were essential for Christianity to survive. There are two doctrines that people must have believed as early Christians. First of all, the deity of Christ that Jesus was God in the flesh. And number two, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For you see, that confirms that Jesus Christ as the divine Messiah. It affirms his teaching as truth. It generates and ensures the believer's salvation. It provides hope for believers' future bodily resurrection. It answers mankind's fear of death and provides hope and purpose and meaning in the presence of death. It serves as the major theme of the apostles' teaching and preaching, and it validates the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I want to share with you some testimonies and some stories of people who've trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and how he has resurrected and redeemed their life. The first one is Ali uh, Tallini, and Ali was baptized just two weeks ago. This is Jessica Siri, who used to be on our staff, uh, who was her neighbor, and uh, Allie had some health problems, and she began to cry out to God, and uh, she didn't go to church. Her family didn't really go to church, and so she began to cry out to him. And Jessica, her neighbor, began to talk to her and began to mentor her and disciple her and spend time with her. And um, Allie came to church one Sunday, and she was here, matter of fact, in her student ministry, and uh, because she had seizures, she passed out. And I was talking to her, and I said, at what point did you know that Christ was Savior? At what point did you commit your life to him? She goes, you know what? on the day that I had that seizure at church. Now, that's not a lot of people wouldn't say that. Uh, I don't know that that would drive all of you to make a commitment. She said, but you know, I I was hearing and I was listening and I was recognizing that God was real. And she goes, I don't know what it was that happened, what made that cause, but it was almost like it was a barrier, you know, to not believe. But all it did was strengthen my belief that what was being preached here and the message that I was hearing was true. She said, so after that, when I responded and after I got back she goes I I was ready I I committed my life to Christ and I said I'm ready to follow him in believers baptism and so she was baptized two weeks ago right here another story here that I I love to share is this is Camille Strange this is her friend Aislinn O'Banion here and I love Camille's story Uh, Camille uh, was not churched either and uh, our pay students a ministry we have in our student ministry one of the one of the girls invited her to come to church, and she started listening to her. She started coming to, to youth ministry, and uh, she, uh, her, on Sunday morning, 
Now, Aislinn said, why don't you come stay with us on Saturday night, and then you can go to church with us on Sunday morning. So she began to do that. She began to go to one of our classes uh, on apologetics uh, taught by the Edwards, and she began to hear that information. And she said, I was sitting in class one day, and I knew what's being stated is true. And after that point, she committed her life to Christ and, uh, and now is, uh, is helping disciple and, and teach ninth grade girls. Just great story of how God worked in Camille's life when none of the rest of her family uh, even attends church. And uh, she was baptized uh, here this past year and just a great story of how God redeems, of how God restores, and how God resurrects. Uh, the next one here is the Hassett family. And uh, this is Mike Hassett. And uh, Mike uh, and Christy uh, had known each other for 25 years, and Mike was not a believer, just never something that he ascribed to or was interested in. And uh, Christy had talked to him a few times about church and about her faith growing up. And uh, one day, uh, one, of her, one of their sons had, a, had attended a youth uh, function here, and afterwards he came back and he said, Dad, why don't we go to church? And he didn't really have a good answer why we didn't go to church. And he thought about it, and he said, you know, my kids are wanting to go. I ought to go with them. So he began to attend church, and for over a year, he just sat out here in the audience, and he would just listen. And it came to the point uh, to where his oldest son accepted Christ. And then Mike, as he was talking to his wife one day, she goes, well, tell me about the church stuff and the whole faith. Where are you? He goes, I'm ready. I believe. I've listened. I believe it. I'm ready to commit my life to Christ. So he did. Then his two younger sons, and then all five of them were baptized here a few months ago as they trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Another one. Jackie Stanfield, some of you may know her. Jackie is a dentist in the office here. And she said, since I was 16, she goes, I was, I was an agnostic. I didn't believe, my father had died when I was 16. I just believed there was no God. She goes, but then people started talking to me. I just started sensing there must be more in life. And she said, uh, and I was asked, I said, how did you even get to church here? She said, you know, a couple of my patients invited me. And I just thought, hey, amen to you guys who in the dentist chair of all places are going, why didn't you come visit us at church this Easter? You know, and I, whoever did that, amen, thank you. Okay, she said a couple of you invited her to church. So she began to come, and she began to go to a Bible study taught by Ruth Brock on the Gospel of John. She said, I'd never studied the Bible. And as Ruth was going through those claims, as I was reading Scripture, for the, really for the first time in my life, Christ just jumped out at me, and I knew he was real, and I committed my life to Christ, and she was baptized here a couple of months ago. Another one is James Hess, and James was raised, I, I shared part of the story before, James was a, raised as a Jew. They were, uh, as he says, I was probably more of a kind of an agnostic Jew, was just Jew in culture, but that, that was our background. And uh, he said, so I never really believed much other than just the ceremonies that we would go through. Um, but he got married, and his wife, when they had children, said, you know, James, I'm, I'm actually a Christian. I know that hasn't been my life up this point, but I'm ready to re-engage he said, well, that's all well good for you, but don't push that on me. Don't expect me to go to church. Don't expect any of that from me. So as they had children, she began to take her children. And as he began to watch, he thought, you know what? She needs some help getting these kids up, and I'll help her, and I'll just take her to church. So he, he said, you know, I decided I'd just be a united front, that I could just sit there for an hour. I'd be fine. And so I began to come, and I began to listen. And I listened week after week, and it was like something was stirring in my heart. It's like God was speaking to me. And James and I visited a couple times. I gave him some things to read as well as a couple of our other ministers. And he began to read those and began to think about them, began to have questions. And then one day, as, uh, after I finished preaching, we had a song that we're singing uh, at the offering. And we hadn't asked everybody to stand up, but I looked over and James is over here and he's standing. And I, I went up to him after the service and said, James, what's going on? He goes, 
I'm ready. I said, what are you ready? He said, I'm ready to believe. What do I have to do? And so we prayed, and he received Christ. He committed his life to Christ, and then he was baptized. Uh, James Hess, and that's a, great, that's a great word right there on his shirt, redeemed. God redeemed James. Here's another story, the Kite's children, which, by the way, I just want you to know right up front that their mother and the children gave me permission to share this story. Every once in a while, some of you get friendly and go, were you supposed to say that? Um, yes, they, they wanted me to share this, okay? There are four children here. This is Eli, their first son that they adopted. And then there's, these are his three sisters. And uh, Eli had a drastic change in his life one day. He was an only child. Everything was going along fine. Then one day he had three sisters all at once. And uh, this is Kelly, Josie, and Jasmine. Kelly, Josie, and Jasmine, uh, as they grew up, were neglected and abused. And uh, the courts came and finally took them away after they realized that these kids had missed two and a half years of school. Matter of fact, Jasmine didn't even start school. So for two and a half years, they were in cars, they were in different locations, but did not even attend school. Then the courts finally stepped in and took them out. They were in four different foster homes till the time they came to uh, the Quillen home, which we have supported and they began to, began to come church here, and Kelly accepted Christ. And then Jasmine, and matter of fact, uh, um, or then Josie and Jasmine will be baptized here in a couple of weeks. And then the conscience adopted them. And, uh, and they were telling a story. They were saying, you know what? Here, here was our life. We had little hope. There was not much joy. There was not much to look forward to. We were just trying to make it to the next day. And God redeemed them. God resurrected their life, a life that they were not even attending school. And now they have a family that loves them. Now they've all three accepted Christ and put their hope and faith. And God is redeeming their life, giving them a new life, a new hope, a new purpose. Beautiful story. One last, uh, or a couple last stories I'd like to share with you. Uh, the next one is uh, Naomi Bateman. And I shared a little bit of this story one time before. Johnny and Christy actually used to youth, both be in my youth ministry when I was a student ministry. And uh, that's Ethan in the back. And then this is Naomi. And when Naomi was born, she had a twin. Her name was Ava. <clears throat> and when they were born, uh, Ava died after about three days. And the doctors came and said, we don't know if Naomi's going to live, but if she does live, she will be a vegetable. She will never be able, she, she doesn't have any brain matter on this side. And on the other side of her brain, it's just gray there. She'll never be able to eat, drink, talk, walk, or do anything. She won't even be able to suck. And we doubt she'll ever even be able to breathe on her own. So we just want you to understand because there is no brain. What little brain matter there is, is gray and dark and doesn't appear any other brain activity. But Christy and Johnny believed and Christy began to pray and she felt like God just gave her peace that Naomi was going to live and that she was going to be okay. And as they went through years and years of therapy, uh, Naomi's here now. She, she's in our, our special needs ministry and some of you help her and she's a beautiful little girl. And just two weeks ago, she went to the baptism class. She sat through that class and she said, Mommy, I want to be baptized. I believe in Jesus. What a great story of redemption, of restoration. From a child who was not meant, was not, they didn't believe would live, and if she did live, there would be little to no life to a place where she attends church here weekly to where she will be baptized here in the next couple of months. God redeems. He resurrects. Last story to share with you, the Diltz family. Cinnamon is another Student that used to be in uh, my student ministry back when I was a youth pastor. This is uh, her daughter, Ruby, her son, Robbie. And then Rob, some of you may know Rob. He's an assistant principal here in this area. A great guy. And then Cinnamon in the back. And several years back, uh, they lost a child to, to SIDS. 
And um, that was a very difficult time for them, certainly a difficult time for Cinnamon. She said it was very hard. She goes, I went through a dark time, a dark time of depression, but all that time I just pray in God. I believe. I believe you're on your throne. I believe you're on the throne when you gave me my child. I believe you're on the throne with him today and that I will see him one day again. And so I just kept believing. And it was a dark three or four years, and it took a long time to work through. But she said, you know, we worked through that. And then about a year ago, Rob was diagnosed with cancer. That went in, and the doctor said, what you don't want to hear, it's melanoma, and we have not caught it early. And so as Cinnamon heard that news, thinking that this might, she might lose another. She said, God, please do not take my husband. I know how hard with my son, but if you do, I still believe you are the same God who was on the throne when Jesus died. You're the same God who created the universe. You are the same God who was there when I lost my first child, and you are the same God who will be there now. I am begging you not to, but I believe. I trust you. And so he's been going through treatments, had surgery, and a few weeks ago they said, you're clear for now. The cancer is gone. He's had the surgery. And she said, I'm just praising God because I believe he is the God who restores. And even if he would have taken my husband, though it would have been desperately hard, I believe I would have seen him again just as I would have seen my son again one day. That's the hope of the resurrection. Not just that we will get a new life, but that God will restore all that is important, all that we've ever longed for. That's the picture and the beauty of the resurrection. Do you know the risen and resurrected Lord? Have you received by faith the grace of Jesus Christ that covers your sin? Have you put your hope and faith in him? The old Scottish preacher who lived in the 17 and 1800s in Edinburgh, John Watson, used to go up to his saints when they were passing away, and he would whisper in their ear, he would go, in my father's house are many mansions. And because you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because you believe he is the way, the truth, and the life, he has gone to prepare a place for you. Jesus is waiting and ready for your new life. Go to him. And it was recorded that more than a couple of times that the believer would have a a smile of contentment on his face. He'd breathe his last breath or her last breath, and they would go. This morning, do you know the risen and resurrected Savior? By faith, have you put your hope in what Jesus Christ has done? Do you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Not a way, not a a potential option, but he is the way in that he has prepared a life forever, a new life for you, a new earth, a new heaven. Have you received? If not, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Would you pray with me? If you're here this morning would you, and you've never trusted Christ, I want to invite you to just say, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. That I can't do enough good needs to merit your acceptance. You died for me. And I must come to the place where I confess that I'm a sinner. And I, and I believe that I'm a sinner. But I believe that you were God in the flesh that you lived the perfect life, that you lived the life I should have lived, and you died the death I should have died. And Lord, I put my faith and hope in what you did on the cross, and I ask that you cover my sins so that a holy God can look upon me because you paid the price 
through your sacrifice, that you conquered sin and death through the resurrection. Lord, I believe in the resurrection, and I believe that one day when I die that you will bring me a resurrected body, a resurrected life, and that you will restore all that I've longed for. God, I believe that, and so I put my hope and my faith and my trust in you. Come into my life and save me. I commit my life to you. If you've done that, I want to ask you to give us evidence of that today of that real and true commitment. Maybe you've made that commitment before, but you've never been baptized. Today would be the day you'd say, Lord, I'm ready to take a step and give testimony. That's what baptism is. It's a picture of the resurrection that you've died in your sins, but you have been risen in Christ Jesus, and you're seen as sinless before God Almighty. Maybe you need to be a part of this church. Maybe you need to be prayed for. Maybe you need to be mentored. We have people that would love to mentor you in marriage, in faith, in any way that you need. But it's time to take a step. You are not here by accident. Will you receive of the grace that has been given to you? I ask you to pray that Jesus would speak to you. And as you've seen the evidence of Scripture, the evidence of logic, the evidence of history, will you walk away or will you receive the risen and resurrected Lord? Why would you deny such a great offering? It's offered you today. What will you do?